MSW Media. Thanks to Athletic Greens for supporting the Daily Beans. Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Just go to athleticgreens.com slash dailybeans to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Monday, August 15th, 2022. Today, I am traveling, everyone, so I'm going to play you a couple of interviews with the incredible Mike Ford and Quentin Palfrey, but also I do want to go over a little bit of news with you. Some stuff that unfolded over the weekend with regards to the search warrant executed on Mar-a-Lago. We now know that at some point after the lawyers came down and, and the, the head of counterintelligence for Department of Justice, Josh Bratt, I believe his, his name is, came down to Mar-a-Lago in June and was, you know, serving a subpoena to get um, classified documents from Donald Trump out of his basement. <laughs> At some point after that, and they subpoenaed the surveillance tapes as well, they got those. It appears that there was something on the tapes where they saw some people moving or removing boxes from that storage space where the classified material was being kept. And this was after, I believe, after the lawyer, either Corcoran or Christina Bob or some other Trump lawyer, had signed off on a piece of paper assuring the DOJ that they had handed back all of the classified material, which turns out to be a complete lie now. And that could be why the obstruction charge, 1519, was on that search warrant. So things are unfolding very rapidly. Um, Donald's got a lot of different defenses. None of us should believe any of them. I think the latest that I'm hearing from the right is that you can't have a basement in Florida because of, you know, it's it's built on a sandbar or something. So it, it's just all sorts of, of excuses that um, that are frankly just way out there. Also, he, they've said that he has declassified all the documents you know, by by holding them up to his, you know, with a, waving a magic wand or taking them to the omelet bar. I don't know. But um, it doesn't matter because none of those documents have to be classified in order for any of those crimes on that search warrant to have been committed. He left off there the, when Merrick Garland put together the search warrant or whoever put it together and Merrick Garland signed off on it. There is no violation. They don't mention 18 U.S. Code 1924 which is the mishandling of classified information statute. And it was actually used to be a misdemeanor, but Trump made it a felony in 2018, but that wasn't on here. No, we have Espionage Act, 18 U.S. Code 793. We have the obstruction charge, which I just talked about, 1519. And then uh, mutilation or mishandling, uh, loss, concealment of presidential records, which is 2071. Uh, that's 18 U.S. Code 2071. So not only, uh, you know, what, what has become sort of clear here is that this isn't about him just mishandling classified information. This is about him misusing it and then obstructing an investigation into his misuse of those documents. We also heard a story that some of these documents were nuclear in nature and, and had uh, defense secrets on them. We would not see those types of documents 
on the inventory list because as the Washington Post pointed out, some of those documents are so classified, you cannot put them on an inventory list because you cannot confirm or deny that they even exist. And I imagine that's why Brat was there, head of counterintelligence at Department of Justice. He might be the only person at the at the Justice Department with a clearance high enough to handle those documents. So we're going to get into all of this and more. I'll be back tomorrow with Dana. In the meantime, you have these really excellent interviews with Mike Ford and Quentin Palfrey. I hope you enjoy them. All right, everybody, welcome back. It's time to flip it blue. And I bet you all remember listening to Andrew Clyde during hearings talking about how the January 6th insurrection was just a simple tourist visit and and all that. And meanwhile, we can see, you know, photos of him cowering in fear when the Capitol was under siege. That guy is the U.S. representative for the Ninth District in Georgia. And today we are lucky enough to speak with the Democrat running against him. His name is Mike Ford. Please welcome to the show, Mike Ford. Hello. How are you today? I'm well. How are you? I am doing really well today. It's been an interesting day in the news so far. And I'm very glad to talk to you because Andrew Clyde, who you're running against, he voted no on the American Rescue Plan. He voted no on the For the People Act. He voted no on the American Dream and Promise Act. I mean, he's pretty much vo- Equality Act. He's he's pretty much voted no on everything that matters to constituents of Georgia's ninth congressional district. Can you talk a little bit about the voters in your district? What kind of district are we looking at with Georgia's ninth? Well, Georgia's ninth has changed dramatically with the uh, Republican redistricting that took place in this cycle. In fact, I had uh, coffee this morning with uh, Carolyn Bordeaux, who was forced to run against uh, Lucy McBath. But the the real answer is we got a lot of uh, the northern part of Gwinnett thrown into the ninth district. We lost a couple of uh, counties, including the one in which Clyde resides. So he's not even in the district anymore. But um, generally, I would describe the northern 12 counties as being uh, predominantly red, uh, red, or even redder. They are classically about 80% Republican voters up there. The two uh, counties of Gwinnett and Hall that are uh, probably the, I won't say together they're the most votes, but they're almost the same in terms of voting strength as the rest of the uh, of the district. It's uh, Somewhat skewed now that they have added a good bit of the northern part of Gwinnett. There are 140,000 voters there that we just got added. And a lot of those Democrats. So it'll be very interesting to see how this shakes out finally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this is going to be a, a more competitive race than we've seen in a very long time because of this redistricting that occurred. And talk a little bit about the needs of the of the constituents in your district, because Let's kick off the platform discussion with talking about uh, reproductive rights, because there's a lot of focus on this going into the midterms. We saw what happened in Kansas when it was on the ballot. We've seen what happens with candidates a little bit. But what's the feeling in in your district about having your rights stripped away from you by this uh, conservative Supreme Court? Well, the Supreme Court uh, did their part, but our governor and the Republican legislators also did their part. 
we have a bill that is called the heartbeat bill or um, the acronym is life, but it's nonsensical. Georgia now is basically anti-abortion. You cannot get an abortion in Georgia if basically you're more than six weeks pregnant. And the, the problem is very few, if any, doctors are going to do that. They're not going to take a chance. So effectively, we're no longer an abortion state. Now, we allegedly have exceptions, but like many states, doctors are just not willing to go on the line when you end up with these questions about whether or not it's a life-threatening situation, how life-threatening does it have to be? And in Georgia, we, we made it even worse because what we said was, well, rape and incest are okay, provided that you have a police report. Uh, it's kind of un, unknowable what that means. Does that mean you go down and file one immediately? If it's an incest thing, do you ask the person who just raped you, would they mind filling it out? It's ludicrous. So basically, we've become a, a non-abortion state. And I looked at Kansas and what they did and all of the problems that were inherent with with what happened in Kansas. And I, I was pretty uh, I was pretty surprised, particularly with how far out the polling was, how far off it was versus what actually happened. So we're talking to people in Georgia. Unfortunately, uh, you would not believe the number of people that don't have a clue that, that it's even happened. To me, it's astounding, but you and I probably pay a lot more attention to politics and things than, than other people do. And frankly, the Republicans in Georgia have suddenly decided mostly that they're very quiet. Our Governor Brian Kemp is kind of saying, well, I think we should just eliminate abortion, period. So that's where where we are and what we're up against. But uh, we're pretty confident that there's going to be an awful lot of backlash here in uh, in our state. Unfortunately, I think that the cycle the election is going to happen on November the 8th. And I think that's going to be before a lot of people really understand the problem. So our, our job is to motivate those people, get that information out, and be sure that people understand what has happened. Because it looks to us like a lot of people just don't know. Yeah, and that's unfortunate. Many people don't realize that this is an issue until they face a problem that disallows them from from seeking that care. Right. So exactly. And when you try to tell them, hey, did you know if you, uh, you have a miscarriage or et cetera, or you have an ectopic pregnancy or something like this happens or there's rape or incest. And then a lot of times they just don't believe what you're saying until it happens to them literally. And so I, I think that that's definitely an uphill battle. But as you said, Kansas gives me a lot of a lot of hope, although they did have a ballot initiative that they were coming out yes. to vote about. Let's talk a little bit about this latest Inflation Reduction Act, which I think is a terrible name for it. It has such huge, <laughs> huge build back better. Let's call it the climate bill. Let's call it the, you know, whatever it is. But uh, talk about your thoughts on climate change, how that impacts jobs and the economy in your district, because climate and jobs go hand in hand, as we know, and what uh, what you're pushing for there. Well, my son happens to be in a solar company, that's where he works. Uh, So I'm perhaps more familiar with it than a lot of people uh, in certain aspects. The other 
interesting problem we have in, in Georgia, particularly the northern part where I am, is we're now facing a fire problem that we haven't seen before. And frankly, a lot of our people, uh, a lot of our fire departments, uh, they're not equipped to handle what can be a forest fire. And people are like, well, it's, it's warmer. What does that mean? Oh, I don't know. It's just hot. No, that's not it. The jobs issue is, is a lot more interesting to me. We have an ongoing fight with our uh, electric provider, Georgia Power Company, who does not want to, uh, to really embrace solar. They're kind of like, yes, see, we have solar. Well, no, you can't get it on your house because <laughs> we have 5,000 instead of 75,000 that you can actually set it up and pay it back or you know, run it back into the grid. So the obvious problems are nobody wants to do anything about it. Nobody wants to talk about it. And bless his heart, my, my opponent uh, comments on, on climate change is he said, well, there are four seasons. Spring, summer, winter, and fall. What about it? And uh, one of my campaign people said, well, he needs to add number five because pretty soon we're going to be dealing with fire season. So we have an opponent that doesn't apparently comprehend or care about the issues. And uh, I don't know what to do about that other than perhaps we should invite him to change his residence from Washington, D.C. to someplace uh, over in Jackson County where he, he belongs. But I mean, Climate change is, is it's a dynamic problem. I mean, George Carlin tried to tell people a long time ago, don't worry, the planet will survive. You may not. And, <laughs> and, and um, I try to talk to people all the time and they're like, well, how does that affect me? And I'm thinking, well, every way. <laughs> but uh, well, one of my campaign advisors says, people don't seem to understand. All of this is connected. Mm. It, it's it's not unlike the problem with uh, with Roe versus Wade and and the abortion situation. <laughs> People are like, well, what does climate change have to do with the cost of goods? Uh, everything. <laughs> it just, it's it it impacts everything. It really does. Everything. And I and I love that you bring up George Carlin. I think it was uh, what am I doing in New Jersey? The planet. The planet is fine. The people are fucked. I exactly. thought that that was a uh, pretty brilliant. And I also love how you said about Andrew Clyde, bless his heart. I'm not from the South, but I know what bless your heart means in the South. Let's talk really quickly while I still have you here for a couple minutes. One more issue on the ballot now is protecting our children from gun violence. What are your ideas and thoughts about about that and how you differ from Andrew Clyde, which I, we probably could guess on that? Well, Andrew Clyde has has engaged in really what amounts to self-serving in the in the Congress. I mean, he's he has two gun stores. He uh, supports things which help him. He's currently doing business with the administration, uh, both nationally and with, with states. So he brings kind of a self-dealing concept to the, uh, to the discussion. There, there are a lot of problems with, uh, with this uh, gun control issue. One of the most basic is we learned from Uvalde that you're supposed to be prepared. You're supposed to be trained. And what a dismal failure that was. 
And we're trying to figure out ways. I mean, I'm sure you know there's a, a bill that has passed in uh, in Congress in the House, and it's it's sitting there waiting to go over to the Senate. I don't know what they're going to do with it, but I don't have a lot of hope that it's going to get through the Senate. I don't, I don't really think it will. So what can we do about it? If we can't get that passed, we're going to have to look hard at, at are there things that we can do to try to address the people that are that are having these problems. And I don't know what it takes to make people understand that we can't just sit by and over and over watch people who are giving off. It's almost like they're radioactive, giving off these signals that they've got problems, but we don't we don't try to deal with it. It, it baffles me. I don't know. I don't know what to say about that. <laughs> me neither. Now, I'm a veteran. You're a veteran. Yes. Thank you for your service. Thank you. We know your opponent, Andrew Clyde, voted against the PACT Act to to give health care to veterans <sighs> suffering from injuries on, on burn pits that happening, burn pits, toxic exposure post 9-11, and then other provisions to protect veterans. My father succumbed to illnesses from Agent Orange exposure in 1990, one year before Biden helped get the Agent Orange Act passed. So and I worked at the VA for over a decade. This is an issue near and dear to my heart. I know we have a lot of veterans in Georgia. Are you talking to Georgians and voters in the ninth about how this this just absolute disrespect to veterans? Well, I'm a veteran. I'm a Vietnam veteran. Uh, I was in helicopters. We went all over uh, the country. And, you know, I have Agent Orange issues. Uh, we don't talk about it very much. It's not terribly serious, but, you know, they're they're there. It's kind of like an absence of LZ friendly when you when you have a situation where the congressman seems determined not to deal with the issues. We have veterans all throughout this uh, this whole area up here, and they're not getting service. I mean, if you were with the VA for a while, you know the historical problems that we've had, and mm-hmm. you know. My dad was a career military. My stepdad was career military. Brother served on B-52s. I mean, we have veterans in the family. And it's always been a disaster when we send people in harm's way, expose them to all kinds of things. And then when we when they come home, we act like, well, we don't really care. I mean, I don't know what's wrong with them. Mm-hmm. I, I don't. But we, we do have people up here which are needing these kinds of, of help. And Clyde just, I don't know, uh, as you would say, and I would say, you know, bless his heart, he, he, do, he doesn't seem to get it. But, of course, bless his heart is what you usually say when you're patting a stupid child. But, uh, you know, I, I don't know what to say about it. Yeah, it's um, frankly, I, I just don't understand how the constant attack on our troops and veterans and, and the government. Uh, it, it's just, it's, it's an unrecognizable Republican party, but it's the, it's the party they've chosen to become. Can you uh, let us know where people can find information about your campaign, donate either money or time, text banking, phone banking, how they can support you Congressman for Georgia's ninth district. Well, we need everybody's support and we need as much support as we can, can possibly get. The website is Mike Numerical Four Georgia spelled out. So that's M I K E number four Georgia G E O R G I A. That's the best way to to get all of the information. That gives you our website. It'll ship you to Facebook. Donate is there, 
everything you could want is on that website, Mike for Georgia. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate your time today. Again, thanks for your service. We're going to get on this. We're going to get our uh, get the listeners over to your website to help promote it, uh, get people to follow you and, and understand that this is a very important race happening down in Georgia. I appreciate your time. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, Mike Ford. Thank you. Glad for you to be able to have me. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. It was wonderful talking to you. Everybody stick around. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, everybody. It's AG. You know I love my Helix Sleep mattress, and my nights have been much better since I got it. It's a mattress that's perfectly designed for how I sleep. Helix Sleep is a premium mattress brand that provides tailored mattresses based on your unique sleep preferences. Everyone is unique, and Helix knows that, and we all sleep differently, and that's why Helix has several different mattress models to choose from, each designed for specific sleep positions and feel preferences. It's amazing. They have 14 models now, uh, models with memory foam layers to provide optimal pressure um, relief if you fall asleep on your side, because that's important for me. They have models with more responsive foam to cradle your body for essential support in stomach and back sleepers. And if your spine needs some extra TLC, they've got you. Even Helix Mattresses has a hybrid design, combining individually wrapped steel coils in the base with premium foam layers on top. It's the perfect combination of comfort and support. I took the Helix quiz. I was matched with the Midnight because I sleep on my side and I prefer a medium firm bed. Um, Not only is it the best mattress I've ever slept on, but the setup was so fast and easy. Helix Mattresses are delivered to a your door in a box for free. Uh, Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for listeners. Just go to helixsleep.com slash dailybeans. With Helix, better sleep starts now. And I want to tell you about something I literally use every day. It's Athletic Greens AG1. I wanted better gut health and I wanted all my supplements and adaptogens and whole foods, superfoods and vitamins and minerals. I wanted it all in one simple, delicious scoop. It's such an easy habit to pick up with just this one scoop of AG1. You get 75 vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, nervous system, immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, helps with aging. It covers everything. And I want to thank Athletic Greens for their support. And they're right now offering you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase when you go to athleticgreens.com slash dailybeans. It's lifestyle-friendly, whether you're keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free. No GMOs, no artificial anything. It's delicious. I take it the first thing every morning. Just one scoop of AG1 and a cup of water helps me stay healthy. And Athletic Greens is climate-neutral. They're climate-neutral certified. And right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. Just one scoop and a cup of water every day, that's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Again, all you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash dailybeans. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash dailybeans to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. You'll be glad you did. Everybody, welcome back. It's time to keep it blue. And joining me today, this is so cool. We get to talk to the candidate for Massachusetts Attorney General. Please welcome Quentin Palfrey. Hi, Quentin. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you. Usually we have on here candidates for state houses and state legislatures. 
But I wanted to talk to some attorneys general, people who are running for the position of attorney general, because coming up with all of the election lies that, you know, stop the steal and election fraud and and potentially having, you know, a lot of things going on with that and having to sort of make sure we enforce our laws that protect the people. I wanted to speak to uh, somebody running for attorney general, and that is why I'm so glad to talk to you today. Tell us a little bit, first of all, about Massachusetts and the law. Like, just give us a general overview of what it is you kind of want to keep going from the incumbent and, and what it is you might want to implement that's different. Yeah, look, I think we're at an extraordinary moment in American history and a really dangerous moment in American history where the Supreme Court is undermining our fundamental rights, where we can no longer look to the federal judiciary to protect our civil rights. We're in a moment when Congress is failing to lead on the really big challenges that we face, whether that's the climate crisis, gun violence, uh, racial injustice. And where our democracy is literally under attack, an armed mob stormed the Capitol to try to disrupt the peaceful transition of power. If you sort of think about where the leadership's going to come from to take on those really big challenges, it's not going to come from the federal courts anytime soon. And no matter what happens, and we're going to fight like hell to keep you know the Congress in democratic hands, but it's unlikely that Congress is really going to have bold leadership. And so I think that the states and the grassroots are really in a position to lead. Massachusetts has a wonderful tradition of leadership dating back to, you know, our constitution was based on the Massachusetts constitution. We were at the heart of the abolitionist movement against slavery. We led the way on equal marriage. We led the way on universal access to health care, though we've got a lot more work to do there. I'm a big single payer advocate. But um, Massachusetts has this tradition of leadership. And I think that there's a real need for that leadership right now. The AG office has been a big part of that. So in recent years, the Massachusetts AG has uh, taken on uh, a corrupt and immoral Trump administration over and over and over again, took on ExxonMobil, took on uh, Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family, whose lies brought us the opioid crisis, took on Walmart. So I think we really need uh, the AGs in blue states to really lead in, in defending our democracy and protecting our civil rights and, uh, and, and, and pushing for urgent progress on things like the climate crisis and gun violence. Yeah. And let's let's kick off the platform discussion, your campaign platform discussion, with a little bit of understanding the role of attorneys general, because, yes, faithfully execute the laws, et cetera. But there's also prosecutorial discretion that's involved. And I want to open up the discussion about reproductive rights, because there are going to be people traveling from states that that don't allow abortion or that criminalize it and go after doctors who are just doing their jobs, trying to save lives. What is the attorney general's role in kind of understanding prosecutorial discretion of what you're going to prosecute and what you're not going to prosecute and how Massachusetts can help in that fight to protect our reproductive rights? Yeah. So I I see the um... The attorney general's office as the chief civil rights officer uh, on this issue. And so I think when I when I think about the attack on abortion rights that's come out of the Supreme Courts and Stobbs, you know, I, I sort of think about four things that the Massachusetts can do. One is we have to have the best laws in the country. Uh, and I think the AG can work with the legislature 
to make sure that we're protecting access to abortion rights, both kind of uh, in terms of the technical details of what the law allows, but also in terms of making sure that insurance is covering it, that we uh, get rid of abortion deserts, that we actually, in a meaningful sense, make sure that uh, people who are pregnant have access to abortion care. Um, the second is implementation of those laws. We, um, you know, we, we need to stand up, for instance, against crisis pregnancy centers that lie to people seeking abortion care. And um, so I think there, there are a lot of ways, you know, we, we uh, the AG office uh, litigated some laws a few years ago around buffer zones, around uh, abortion clinics. And so I think that there's, a, there's an enforcement role there um, to make sure that we increase access. I think that we're going to have people fleeing persecution from other states, fleeing bounty hunters. And so we need to make sure both that we create a safe haven for folks who are seeking abortion care and gender affirming care coming in from other states, that we protect our providers from uh, you know, these attempts by other states to add liability uh, for those who, uh, who help people access their fundamental rights. Uh, and then, you know, I think that we're, we need to have a national uh, role in trying to rebuild our uh, democratic uh, values. You know, we, we need to move back in another direction that's not going to come from the Supreme Court. It's going to come from states and grassroots leaders and uh, reproductive rights organizations, you know, leading a conversation to kind of reclaim some of what we've lost. The other thing that I think of in the context of Dobbs is, Abortion care is an extremely important part of this conversation. We need to be really, we need to really focus on making sure that we increase access. But this is a broader attack on our civil mm. rights. You could see. Yeah, I was going to ask you about maybe some preemptive steps that you might take for things down the line that are on the chopping block, as Clarence Thomas put in his, you know, concurrence with the Alito decision that contraception is is on the chopping block. The same-sex marriage is on the chopping block. Uh, you know, all these things uh, issue, you know, how they relate to privacy. And so, yeah, I think maybe that there's some proactive things that you can do to, to preempt I that. I think you're absolutely right. This is the beginning of a long fight or the middle of a long fight because they've been working on this for a long time. They really were very strategic in stacking the federal judiciary and stacking the Supreme Court and used some really cynical maneuvers like Mitch McConnell blocking Merrick Garland to get to this point. But you can see in that Justice Thomas concurring opinion, you could see in the leaked opinion draft that they're not just going after uh, abortion rights, um, as critical as that is to our fundamental freedoms. They're going after LGBTQ rights. They're going after equal marriage, contraception, even interracial marriage is referenced, you know, as a, as a possible attack in that uh, that opinion. And so I think that we do need the states to work together to to try to push back to defend our fundamental uh, civil rights, um, and we're going to have to work on that in, you know, in tandem with other blue states. And it's one of the reasons why I think having experienced, qualified uh, attorneys general in these blue states, we may be the last line of defense on a lot of fundamental uh, rights that, you know, I think five years ago, I'm not sure we would have thought were on the chopping block, but now we're in a really, uh, a really important fight. You know, the other thing is it breaks my heart to see, say, Texas, the attorney general of Texas treating gender affirming care as child abuse and sending uh, investigators into people's houses. And so, you know, just as we're going to see people seeking abortion care coming into Massachusetts and other states to seek 
medical care. We're also going to see people in the LGBT community fleeing persecution from a number of, of red states, and we're going to need to defend our, our fundamental rights in that way as well. Yeah, absolutely. Let's shift over to a couple of things that I think are intertwined, but are both on your platform here, voting rights. And then, of course, what we can do to fix our two systems of justice that we that we seem to have going on in a lot of places, because, you know, a lot of times we, t- I, you know, on this show, we talk about federal, the federal justice system. And that is so different from individual states systems of justice. And you talked about working together with other states. As far as voting rights are concerned and as far as justice reform are concerned, what kinds of practical things can you do by working with other attorneys general when you're elected here to sort of, I don't know, help us preserve these rights because they are currently being trampled and it is nationwide. So you you mentioned working with other attorneys general. How does that work and what sort of things are you looking at as far as voting rights and criminal justice reform? Yeah, so our democracy is literally under attack. We're watching history unfold with these January 6th hearings, but an armed mob stormed the Capitol to try to disrupt the peaceful transition of power at the direction of a sitting president. Um, And that is on top of a series of challenges that we face within our system around voter suppression, around gerrymandering, around campaign finance, corruption, and uh, you know the undemocratic nature of the way that the Electoral College and the Senate work. There are a whole series of things that have undermined the functioning of our democracy. I've spent a good deal of my career on this issue. I've uh, Uh, Under President Obama, I led a team of about 4,000 lawyers uh, in the battleground state of Ohio trying to stand up for people who are trying to register vote and have their votes count. We know that for many years there have been unjust obstacles to people of color, young people, people from immigrant communities registering voting and having their votes count. So this has been a lot of my life's work. I founded a national nonprofit called the Voter Protection Corps. Uh, in the 2020 cycle to try and head off some of these challenges. So this is a big, uh, big project for all of us. I think that we need to be a little bit pessimistic about the ability of the federal government to be the, the place where we, we solve all of these problems. So on Martin Luther King Day, Joe Biden went to John Lewis's hometown and called for reform to the filibuster to pass the John Lewis Act and the For the People Act and was rebuffed by Mitch McConnell, by Joe Manchin, by Kirsten Sinema, by all of the Republican caucus in the Senate. Unless, and unless the, the next election goes a lot better than, than it looks like it's going to at this moment, that's probably not where we're going to see those fundamental reforms. So I think that that then means uh, that the states are going to be the place where we're going to need to lead. And uh, so I've been pushing for Massachusetts uh, to be more democratic in the small D sense because we're not a leader. We don't even have Election Day registration. So we block you know, people who are otherwise eligible from voting uh, based on uh, arbitrary and bureaucratic registration deadlines. We have a very untransparent legislature that works in many ways in an autocratic sense. I've been also very focused on campaign finance problems. So since Citizens United, we've seen this flood of special interest money coming into our politics. 
if you think about why we don't have meaningful gun violence action on the federal level, uh, it's because of the NRA. If you think about why we don't have more urgent action on, on the climate crisis, so that it looks like we're going to make a little bit of progress this week at the national level. But, um, you know, it's, it's because of the power of the oil and gas companies in our campaign finance system and, and how that sort of pollutes our election. So I think if you want AGs to stand up, and if you want your elected officials to stand up against the Walmarts and the Bain Capitals and the Exxon Mobiles and the NRAs, you got to get that special interest money out of our election. So I've spent a lot of time talking about and thinking about how we can kind of rebuild our democracy from the state level and from the grassroots up. You touched on another issue which is very near and dear to my heart, which is the ways in which we sort of have two justice systems. If you sort of think about the George Floyd murder, on the one hand, and Breonna Taylor and a whole series of other things. And then on the other hand, you look at like the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict, uh, you can very clearly see that we have two justice systems in America. Mm-hmm. We imprison too many people for too long for doing too little. Race has too much to do with who ends up in the criminal justice system. And we've seen since uh, you know the failed war on drugs, this absolute explosion of our uh, incarcerated population and huge racial disparities in our criminal justice system. We're just not going to arrest and incarcerate our way out of problems that are primarily about structural racism, about underinvestment in substance use uh, dis- you know, disorder and mental health and, and stable housing and uh, chronic disease management. If you actually want to solve those kinds of challenges, you really do have to focus on prevention. You do have to focus on making sure that every kid gets a a start in life that they deserve. And so I'm a big fan of data and evidence and using data and evidence to sort of inform uh, how we try to reform some of these systems. And and I point to somebody in our uh, state, Rachel Rollins was the Suffolk District Attorney as part of this progressive prosecutor movement. She's recently become the U.S. attorney. One of the cool things that she did and a number of other progressive prosecutors have done recently is use prosecutorial discretion, the ability to decide whether or not to prosecute certain crimes, use that prosecutorial discretion in innovative ways to try to bring down this over-incarceration, to try and bring down some of these racial disparities, and also at the same time to open up data sets so that scholars can work with you in real time to see what's working, what's not, and do more of the things that work. And so I think uh, that's been a really successful approach. And I, I think that we ought to uh, move more in that direction. Absolutely. And one last question here before I let you go, talking about creative ways to use prosecutorial discretion. You talked about campaign finance. We talked about voting rights. You mentioned expanding access to health care, very important, the urgency to fight climate change. Of course, education, you mentioned evidence-based justice reform. All of these things are impacted by how the attorney general uses and finds creative ways to use prosecutorial discretion, especially in opening up when we talked about defending the reproductive rights. Before I let you go here, talk for a minute about what the power of the AG can do to help curb gun violence. Yeah. So this is just heartbreaking. I have three kids, 13, 11, and five. It's just really hard to see these stories, see Uvalde, you know, and, and see how little has happened um, since uh, recent uh, you know, mass shootings and sort of say, well, when is somebody going to do something about this? And I think that the reason why we haven't seen that action on the congressional level is because the NRA has so much power in our campaign finance system and really owns a fair amount of our our Congress. And so I think then, you know, you need states to lead. Massachusetts has had 
a really uh, strong track record of leadership on gun violence. We've had some of the best laws. We've had some of the best enforcement of those laws, and we've had some of the best uh, results. There's still too much gun violence in Massachusetts, but we have had better results as a result of our better laws. The Supreme Court recently has tied our hands a little bit, and we need to work with the legislature to make sure that our laws are as strong as possible. Um, but there's several other steps that I would really like to take. One is I want to hold gun manufacturers responsible. So I don't think we should be producing assault weapons in Massachusetts that are not lawful for sale. In Massachusetts, I think we need to get rid of the liability shield uh, so that gun manufacturers are accountable for the uh, the consequences of, of what, they, what they've done. We need to work with other states. We find that weapons of war find their way into Massachusetts that you can't buy here. Uh, we got to take on 3D printed or ghost guns. We got to take on armories and bulk uh, purchase sales. So you find uh, when people are um, you know, on, a, on a crime scene, you often see that a lot of those, those weapons came out of these bulk uh, sales. So we got to crack down on that. We talked about data and evidence. A lot of the violence comes out of uh, communities. And so a lot of the prevention needs to be in those communities. And we have uh, some good evidence-based approaches to investing in community prevention. I also think we need to get serious about suicide prevention. Um, this has touched my, my own life uh, personally. And in numerically, it's where gun violence uh, is most devastating in, in Massachusetts. We have something called an extreme risk protective order uh, statute. Some people call this a red flag law that creates some opportunities to identify people who are risk to themselves and others and intervene before you know, before a crisis or, or a tragedy occurs. And so, you know, getting serious about community prevention and suicide prevention, I think, is really important as well. Yeah, absolutely. And as a veteran, I, I 100 percent agree with that. And we have seen some successes in going after gun manufacturers in the way that they market to people as well. And that's something that the attorney general can can uh, take into account. Your primary is coming up on September 6th here. It's about a month from now. How can people who are listening help your campaign? Yeah, we'd love to get you involved. I've got a website called QuentinPalfrey.com. I'm a clean elections candidate. And what that means in our system is uh, grassroots donations up to $250 are matched by our public financing system to give me an opportunity to get our word out. Uh, so we'd love for you to get involved in the campaign, either by making a grassroots contribution or being involved in our volunteer efforts. Uh, so please come to QuentinPalfrey.com, sign up and get involved. We'd love to have your help. All right. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time today. I wish you the best of luck. I'd like to check in with you again as we get closer to your primary there, and we'll definitely talk more. Everybody, please help out as however much you can. These attorneys general are so important to the fights that, that we're going to be facing over the next few years. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Quentin Palfrey. Thanks so much for having me, Allison. All right, everybody, that's the show today. I will be back tomorrow with Dana. We are going to break down all of this amazing justice news for you. And we're going to do it with some swears, appropriate profanity. It'll be awesome. I promise. And uh, thanks again to Mike Ford and Quentin Palfrey for speaking with me today. Absolutely incredible for you to come on, take some time out of your busy schedule to talk to us and the Leguminati. So until tomorrow, everybody, please take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of the planet, take care of your mental health, and vote blue over Q. I've been AG, and them's the beans. The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg and Amy Carrero. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane with art and web design by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. Music for The Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants, and the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, please visit mswmedia.com.
M S W Media.